As you head back to your seats, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. To Ephesians chapter 3. I'll give you a second to get there. If you're visiting with us, <clears throat> I want to welcome you. Uh, my, I'm the other Pastor Michael. Uh, privileged to serve as a lead pastor here at Newbreed Church. We're thankful that you're visiting with us. We're in the midst of a series, a series that we've entitled The Mission, where we are just taking this month, the start of the year, to evaluate our mission statement uh, as a church. But before we do that, while you're flipping there, I just want to take just a second and kind of echo what Pastor Michael said earlier. So first off, New Breed Church, happy anniversary to you. Um, Ten years that we have existed. And I know... We didn't quite do a huge celebration today. We're going to plan something kind of during the summer. Our hope is to invite back some folks who have been very instrumental in Newbreed. But I just just want to do something. One, because I'm just curious. So we, you know, Newbreed launched in 2014. It constituted after a merger in 2015. And so I'm just curious if you were here at Newbreed during the beginning, kind of when we merged through, when we merged together, would you just stand up? If you've been here for these 10 years, praise God for your faithfulness. Praise God for your, you can be seated. Now I'm just curious. Yeah, you can clap for them. Praise God for your faithfulness. If you've joined New Breed in the past year, I just want to invite you to stand. So if you've joined within the past year, man, praise God for that. That he is still working and drawing people. You may be seated. Now listen, if you're here and you haven't joined New Breed and you know you should. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> but I don't want it to be lost on you this morning just how faithful God has been to us. You do realize that in the life of church plants, which is what New Breed was, the likelihood of it making it past five years uh, is not very high. And it's not because we figured it out. It's not because we did such a great job. It's because God has been faithful. And I think that's evidence of the fact that he wants us here doing ministry where he has placed us. I'm not going to reflect too much now, but I want to just tell you that New Breed Church has been the hardest thing I've ever done in ministry. And it has simultaneously been the greatest thing I've ever done in ministry. And I don't say this joking or Lighthearted, if the Lord allows me to die in this pulpit with you, I would be content with that if I spent the entirety of my ministry here. Because I am so thankful to be in covenant fellowship with each and every one of you. So let's just praise God for a minute for what He has done for the past 10 years here at Newbreed. He's been faithful. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all aren't that excited, so we'll get about six months and we'll hopefully be ready to celebrate that. A little bit more. Church, I want to read uh, this morning where our text is going to come from. It's Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we continue on in this series through our mission statement, also through the book of Ephesians. Our mission statement says that we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. Hear what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, 
the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. You have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you. The mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly written above by reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations. It is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You could preach about 15 sermons out of that. But this morning I want us to consider this aspect of our mission statement where life exists where life exists. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready on this day to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Showing off Christ where life exists. You know, back in 2012, there was a Long Island police officer named Tom Boyle, and he was hailed as a hero. It wasn't because of anything that he did as a police officer. Boyle was actually off duty, enjoying a day at a rather isolated beach with his family. They actually thought that they were the only ones on this section of beach when he noticed something. See, being aware and having already warned his children that there was an extremely strong rip current that day, the family decided to stay on the beach and allow the kids to play in a very shallow part of the water. However, while watching his children, he looked out and noticed an individual that he hadn't seen prior who was far from the shore, struggling against the current and being drug out to sea. And Boyle didn't hesitate. See, though he was currently a police officer, Boyle had an extensive background and past career in water rescue. And so Boyle was able to swim out to the struggling swimmer, get them out of the rip current, and bring them back to land. And even Boyle acknowledged 
that if it wasn't for his current profession of being a police officer and the physical shape he had to maintain for that role, he likely wouldn't have been able to have the strength to get himself out of the rip current, let alone pull another swimmer. But while being interviewed, Boyle said this. He said it was pure coincidence. I happened to be at the right place at the right time with the right skills. I was at the beach when someone needed help. I happened to have a background in water rescue and I have a current profession which keeps me in shape. But then Boyle paused. And in a moment of reflective honesty, he said, maybe it wasn't a coincidence at all. Maybe this was exactly where I was supposed to be to make a difference. Later, reflecting on that day at the beach, he mentioned how he thought his most meaningful accomplishments would come while on duty as a police officer. However, the moment he's most proud of, the moment he values the most, is when he saved a life while at the beach with his family. And what Boyle ultimately came to realize was that sometimes the greatest impact can happen in ways and moments and places where we least expect something amazing to happen. Here's what I want to tell you this morning. The greatest impact you can have, your greatest impact in this world for the kingdom of God will most likely happen in ways and moments and places where we least expect something amazing to happen. Dare I say that the greatest impact, your greatest impact in this world will likely happen when you are faithful simply where life exists for you. And I wonder this morning if perhaps one of the reasons we can struggle to be about the mission God has called us to is we have this false notion of where and how it is we have to be used. Let me say it like this. There's a reason why in our mission statement, we say we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists. And there's a reason we don't give specific places. Because we believe that wherever you are, whether you work in an office or whether you work from home, whether you're working a working parent or you're a stay-at-home parent, whether you're a student or you're retired, whether you are at Target or whether you are on Twitter, we exist to make disciples who show off Christ wherever life exists for us. And though we share common experiences and common life spaces as believers, each and every one of us has a unique opportunity to make much of Jesus wherever he has placed us. Though we are covenant community, collectively seeking to fulfill a common mission, we can't fulfill our mission apart from where life exists. I can't fulfill your mission for you. You can't fulfill the mission for me. Specifically because our lives, though they should overlap in certain areas, they exist in different places. And again, maybe part of the reason we struggle is because we have a false notion of where and how God has to use us. Please hear me when I say this, church. You are uniquely positioned to make much of Jesus where God has you. And I want to remind you that God has you where you are for a reason. And know that it's not just to get an education. It's not just to get a promotion. It's not just to raise those children and then make it to retirement. God has you where he has you because he wants you there and he has uniquely equipped you to make much of his great name. But know this, wherever you are, difficult circumstances will arise. 
You will have good times, you'll have bad times, you'll have moments of rest, and you will have moments of chaos. You will have times of peace and times of trouble, but regardless of the circumstance, you are called to be faithful, to make disciples wherever life exists for you. And here's why I say all of that, because I believe we can be tempted to think that the grass is always greener on the other side. That if God was using me over here, if I had that job, if I had that platform, if I had that position, if I was in the pulpit, then I could make disciples. And we have a temptation to think that it's always better somewhere else. But the mark of a faithful Christian is not that when hard circumstances come, you're able to find a way out. Please hear me. The mark of a faithful Christian is not that when hard circumstances come, you're able to find a way out. The mark of a faithful Christian is that when hard circumstances come, and they will, you will endure well for the glory of God. That's important for us to remember because if I'm honest, church, many are teaching something very different. We live in a society, let me finish the statement before you, you, you get mad at me, okay? We live in a society that is overly concerned with self-care. Now listen, there's nothing, there is nothing necessarily wrong with caring for yourself. Actually, I could argue it from the Bible. But self-care makes a poor God. And in other words, sometimes the stressful situations, sometimes the hard moments, sometimes the difficult moments, sometimes those annoying people that we want to avoid are opportunities provided by God himself for you to show off how amazing Jesus is, this Jesus that you claim to place your hope in. Listen, I get it. There are some toxic people. There are some toxic workplaces, right? There are some toxic circumstances. And there is, to a degree, there has to be this level of kind of self-care and watching yourself. But what if not every one of those toxic people and toxic circumstances and toxic workplaces are there for you to run from? But you're in them because God has provided you an opportunity to show off how much better Jesus is. And I wonder how much different our mission would look If instead of trying to get out of seasons and circumstances we don't like, we spend as much effort in trying to make disciples while we are in those circumstances, believing that maybe the struggle itself is the opportunity to show off Christ where life exists. And I think I could make the argument from our text in Ephesians 3 that Paul understood that. Because remember this, as Paul is writing this letter, the book of Ephesians, he's sitting in a prison in Rome. He's not in the most ideal situation. But yet he says this in Ephesians 3.1, for this reason I, Paul, look at this, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul understood that the very circumstance that so many of us would rightly dread was a circumstance allowed by God, so much so that he doesn't say I'm a prisoner of Rome which he was. He says, but I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. Why? To faithfully fulfill his calling. And as he concludes this this part of Ephesians 3, he says in verse 13, so then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. And what this teaches us is that Paul did not define his faithfulness or his ability to be faithful Based on his circumstances, he refused to let his circumstances define his identity, his purpose, or his mission. Paul understood that wherever life exists, wherever the Lord sees fit to place me, I will make much of Jesus. And the question for Paul 
wasn't what circumstances will allow me to fulfill my mission. The question for Paul was, will I be faithful to fulfill the mission regardless of the circumstances? Will I be faithful? And church, in reality, that's the question that you and I have to answer at any given moment of our life. Will I be faithful? And what I love about Ephesians 3 is not just that we see how Paul would answer in the affirmative that yes, he will be faithful, but we see what actually leads Paul to be faithful, to show off Christ where life exists. In these verses, we see how Paul was able to think like this in the midst of prison, in rough circumstances, how he could be about his mission no matter what. We see how Paul was able to remain faithful in any circumstances. And so this morning, there are four things that I want you to see that actually led to Paul being faithful as he attempted to show off Christ where life existed for him. And I want to commend to you that if you cultivate through the power of the Spirit, please hear me, I believe this, if you cultivate through the power of the Spirit these four realities in your own life, you will be able to be faithful in any circumstance wherever life exists. So here's the first thing that I want you to see. I want you to notice that Paul had the right motivation. Paul had the right motivation. Paul was motivated by one thing and one thing alone, the grace of God. Look at what he says there in verse 2. Actually, let me, let me read through these first eight verses again. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you, the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's good news for us. He says, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. Now I want you to pay close attention to a couple of verses Look again at what he says there in verse 2. Assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. Look again, verses 7 through 8. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. Paul, again, was motivated by one thing and one thing alone. The grace of God that had been poured out on him. God's grace, in other words, changed everything for Paul. But notice what these verses don't say Paul was motivated by. He wasn't motivated by prestige or recognition. He wasn't motivated by ease and comfort. He wasn't motivated by his pastor or his church. And listen to me, I need you to hear this. I cannot, the pastors of New Breed, we cannot provide you a sufficient motivation for you to fulfill our mission. But the grace of God can. 
And you might be thinking, well, then why in the world are we going through these series for five weeks talking about our mission if you can't motivate us to do it? Great question, because this series gives me an opportunity to remind you of just how amazing God's grace is. Because I don't have a sufficient motivation in me to give you to fulfill this mission. All I can do is point you back to the grace of God. A grace that not only calls you to him, but a grace that sends you into the world. And in essence, you could say Paul's chief motivation was all that we talked about in chapter 2 last week. You remember chapter 2, right? The foundations of a disciple. First, that a disciple is someone who's reconciled with God. Paul begins in Ephesians chapter 2 and says, But you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and sons of disobedience. He talks about the fact that we were all by nature children of wrath, each and every one of us. And then he gets to verse 4 and says, But God, who is rich in mercy, has made you alive with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. He seated us in the heavens with Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's, not a, it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. It's God's grace that reconciles you to him. And then in verses 11 through 22, he talks about how God's grace is also sufficient to reconcile you back to one another. He is our peace who has tore down the dividing wall of hostility. All of this is God's grace. Paul had a robust understanding of what God's grace provided, not just salvation, but also a new purpose. Paul understood what we talked about last week, that the gospel not only saves you from something, the gospel saves you for something. And if all we think that Jesus did was give us a get out of hell free card, we've missed the picture of the gospel. Salvation allows us to do something we could never do before, to actually live a life that glorifies God. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can now, for the first time, by the power of the Spirit, be faithful. This ability to live for God, provided by the grace of God, was the motivation for all that Paul did. Well, then the question becomes, well, how do we allow the gospel and the grace of God to actually motivate us? The answer is simple. Please hear me. It is a simple answer, but it is so hard to put into practice. Here's how we allow the grace of God to motivate us. We remind ourselves often of the amazing grace of God. I know I say this so frequently, but I remember where I was when God saved me. And I need you to know that's not just something I say to be cute in the pulpit to get a response. I remember being a slave to sin. I remember being a slave to this world. I remember being a slave to Satan. And I remember the moment I was set free. And what joy filled my soul and what hope filled my life. And the reason I remember is because I remind myself. There is a real temptation for believers who have walked with Jesus for a while. Right, so January 8th, I think I celebrated 27 years since my baptism. I'm not as far as some, but I've walked with Jesus for a little while. And I know that this temptation is real for me. There's a temptation for believers who have walked with Jesus for a while to see the grace of God, listen to me, as a story to be sustained rather than a salvation to be savored. There is a real temptation for those of us who have walked with Jesus to see the grace of God as a story we have to sustain rather than a salvation to be savored. And Paul in this text is so enamored by the grace of God that it sanctifies his suffering. It turns prison into a reason to praise. It turns jail into a reason for joy. 
It takes the difficult circumstances and turns them into a shout of praise. Because for Paul, the grace of God is not just the story he tells, it's the salvation he savors. And the reason he can savor his salvation in any circumstance is because no circumstance can take away that salvation. Or to use Paul's own words, God's grace is so sufficient that neither death nor life, not angels nor rulers, not things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, we have to savor this. And that may mean that some of us have to go to home today and preach the gospel to ourselves until we actually believe it again. Paul had the right motivation and it was the grace of God. But there was more. Paul also had a right mentality. So he had right motivation, but he also had a right mentality. Look at how Paul describes himself in verses 7 and 8. He says, I was made a what? A servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Then he says, this grace was given to me the what? The least of all the saints to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. You see, not only did the grace of God motivate Paul, but it also helped him see himself clearly. Because God's grace reminds us, church, that we don't deserve what God has done for us. No, no, and I need you to feel that. His grace, for it to be grace, it means that we don't deserve it because that's what grace is. If you and I could earn even an ounce of God's favor apart from Christ, just the smallest bit, it ceases to be grace. Because what makes grace grace is that God has done something for us that we don't deserve at all. I've said it before and I'll say it again since this sermon is turning into me reminding you of old truths that I guess we still need today. You are not here because you were so moral. You are not here because God recognized in you a propensity for religious activity. You are not here because you are so smart that you could figure out this salvation stuff on your own. You're not here because you intrinsically possessed a unique set of characteristics that God needed. You are here because when you couldn't get to God, God came to you. You are here because when you had nothing to offer God, God offered everything to you in Christ Jesus. Let me say it another way. The right mentality means we come to recognize that we are not the main character in this story we call our lives. We are not the main character. And when we remember this, it will force something upon us. Do you know what it is? Humility. And humility is the needed posture for faithfulness if we're going to show off Christ where life exists. Or you could say it like this. If we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel, we have to come to understand that the goal of our life is not to show off us. And it's easy to sit in here and say amen to that while we're in this place. But just think of how much the world is focused on us showing off us. I have Instagram too, okay? I try to make myself and my life look better than it actually is. You get the cute pictures of my children sledding and swimming. You didn't get the fight in the locker room to get the pants off. Right? One child throwing a shoe at another child. In subtle ways, we have a temptation to show off us. 
I'm not saying you can't post your kids' pictures on Instagram or your pictures. Go for it. I'll heart it, right? I'm just saying we are not the main characters of this story. And if we're going to be faithful in any circumstance, we have to develop a humility, a humility that recognizes that every good thing in our life and every hard thing in our life, every circumstance we encounter and every opportunity before us is actually the result of a God who loves us. Here's why this is so important. Because not only will a right mentality lead us into our mission, it will also sustain us in our mission when everything goes wrong. It will give you a proper perspective when things go sideways as we try to make much of Jesus. And I need you to know, things will often go sideways when you try to make much of Jesus where life exists. Jesus himself wasn't shy about this. You're in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Right? The, the verses we always quote. Don't, First Peter, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as if though something strange is happening to you. Right? First Timothy, if you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Jesus never said following him was easy. He just said it was better. And it is. I'm convinced that part of the reason we struggle so much when hard circumstances come, as we try to show off Christ where life exists, why we struggle and kind of give up on the mission in that moment is because if we're honest, we might not say it, but if we really do some introspection, if we're honest, we believe we deserve better than that. We believe we don't deserve hardship. We don't deserve struggle. I've walked with you for almost 30 years, Jesus. What do you mean I still need to suffer? I deserve better. But to serve God and to love those he has called us to, to be faithful wherever life exists, it will require us have a right mentality that it's the grace of God that saves us. It's the grace of God that keeps us, that I am not the main hero of this story and I don't deserve ease and comfort. But God's so faithful that he keeps me nonetheless. To serve God, again, to love those he has called us, to be faithful wherever life exists, it will require us to have a right mentality that we think more of God and the people that we can tell about him than we do ourselves. It's ultimately developing a Philippians 2, 3, and 4 mentality, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You do realize that in this story of your life, you are third at best. God's first and people are above you. Because God's command wasn't love yourself, love God, and then love people. It was love God and love people. I'm not Jesus. Take it up with him. <laughs> but when we genuinely reflect on the grace of God, it ought to humble us. So if we're looking at the grace of God and what Christ has done for us and it causes us to boast in ourselves, I don't know that we're actually looking at the grace of God. Because as our dear brother who was here some years back used to tell us all the time, Dr. Curtis Woods, because of the gospel, we're not better than anyone. We're simply better off. See, the gospel doesn't make us great. It unites us to the one who is great. And we are privileged now to serve him, 
right? Speaking of Paul's mentality, one commentator said this about Paul. He said, this is no feigned humility with Paul. It is the inevitable attitude of one who is prostrated with wonder at the grace of God in Christ. And so here's my call to you. Don't lose your wonder and in turn lose your mission. You see, if we're struggling to make much of Jesus, we are struggling to show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel, the ultimate goal shouldn't be to just make ourselves do the mission more. We'll fail. That's not a good motivation. That might be an indication that we, we've somehow ceased savoring the grace of God in our life. And I'm not trying to throw shade on you. It happens to every one of us where we can forget the magnitude of the gospel, where life happens and we get distracted. I'm just encouraging you to evaluate yourself that if the mission is foreign to you, maybe the grace of God isn't as close as you think. Because when I think about what the Lord has done for me, it becomes very different, difficult to keep quiet about it. So Paul had the right motivation. He had the right mentality. But third, I want you to see this. Paul had the right mission. That's important. He actually had the right mission. Look at a few of these verses again. So he says in verse 6, The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now look at verse 8. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to what? To proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. I'm really glad I've said incalculable right every time because that'll, that'll trip you up. Look at verse 11, all right? This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul knew what his specific mission was. And Paul knew where it was. In order for him to be faithful, regardless of what was going on around him, Paul couldn't lose sight of the actual mission. Right? There's a reason that I have said the mission statement in all of these sermons like five times each. Like I want you to know what our mission is. But Paul knew what God had specifically called him to. And in Paul's case, God had called him to take the message of the gospels to the Gentiles. He said it multiple times already that my job is to declare that Gentiles are co-heirs in the promise, right? To preach the gospel to Gentiles. He knew it. Therefore, he was undeterred. Paul knew his mission didn't come from individuals, though it was affirmed by individuals. Paul knew his mission didn't come from the church, even though it was affirmed by the church. Paul's mission was given to him by God. Can I propose to you this morning that a mission statement that we have written on paper that's on our website, that we have repeated over and over, can I propose that that is a mission that we didn't create, but that God has given us? That's why I'm trying to show it to you by just teaching straight through a book of the Bible and showing you it's all here. This is God's mission. This is ultimately what the mission of every church should be. It's just churches say it in a different way, but they're ultimately saying the same thing if they're getting it right. Right? That, that, that our mission is given to us by God. Paul understood this, and because of this, for Paul, no earthly circumstance would stop him from being as faithful as he could be. And I want to press in here, because not only do we see that Paul knew his mission, but watch this, it really did stem from where life existed for him. Right? Like Paul's mission, yes, it was given to him by God, but we can't miss that it stemmed from where life existed. 
So Paul understood, right, that he was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I heard one person say this once that, yeah, that makes sense because he was a Jew killing Christians before coming to Christ and his conversion meant that he couldn't effectively reach Jews anymore. I don't think that's the rationale. At best, it's speculation, but it actually doesn't make sense. Here's why. Because Paul did disciple Jews. Paul did teach Jews. Paul confronted Jews when necessary. Or Galatians chapter 2. Paul ministered to Jews. That just wasn't the primary focus of his ministry. Why? Because that's not where life existed for Paul. Think about it. When Paul was converted on the Damascus road after his conversion, where did he go? He didn't go back to Jerusalem. He didn't go to where the Jewish Christians were. Acts 9.19 tells us that Saul was, the, uh, was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. So, and then Paul himself says in Galatians 1, 17 and 18, of his conversion, I did not go to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and then came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Peter and I stayed with him for 15 days. Side note, that three years is incredibly important when you realize that all the other apostles were trained by Jesus for three years and he was trained by three years. That's a freebie for you. But what Paul is saying is, I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't go to the Jewish Christians. I went to Arabia. I went to Damascus. So what does that mean? It means that Paul prepared for his ministry, was trained for ministry in a diverse multi-ethnic setting. He wasn't just around Jews. So for Paul, his converted life began with an understanding of Gentiles coming to faith. He was with disciples in Damascus, the disciples who were already there. Well, who were they ministering to? Primarily Gentiles. So he is seeing Jesus proclaimed in a diverse setting. What I'm trying to get you to see is that the Christian life for Paul initially existed in a primarily Gentile world, his Christian life. So for Paul, where life existed was among the Gentiles. Here's why that matters. It would have been easy for Paul to say, I want to do my ministry over there with all the other apostles in Jerusalem. I want to be where they are. I want my ministry to look like their ministry. I want my influence among my own people to be as grand as their influence is. But that's not what Paul does. He simply makes much of Jesus where life existed for him, among the Gentiles. Again, here's the big point. Another reason that we are hesitant to make disciples where life exists is because we often think that where life exists for us is insignificant. We think the position and influence that he has given us at our jobs is insignificant as it relates to our mission. We think that the children that God has entrusted to us are insignificant as it relates to the mission. We think our friends and our sphere of influence is insignificant as it relates to the mission. It would have been easy for Paul to say, I want to do my ministry over there. All the other apostles are in Jerusalem. I want to be where they are. I want my ministry to look like their ministry. I want all of those things. But maybe for us, the people and the places where we feel like it might be insignificant to the mission, maybe those places actually are the mission for us. We just want something else. And if we're going to be faithful to make disciples where life exists, we have to be honest about where life exists for us and recognize that's the mission. We love God and we love people seeking to make disciples wherever life exists. 
Right? I mean, remember, Jesus summed up the entirety of the law with two commands, love God and love people. That's your mission. And it will play itself out in different ways through different avenues with different people in your life. But ultimately, it's going to be where life exists. Because I don't know if you know this, but you can love God at your job. You can love God at the grocery store. You, you can love God when you're wrestling around with your kids. Right? You can love people at your job. You can love people at the grocery store. You can love every person that God has placed in your life. But we just have to be honest and know where our mission is. And it's wherever life exists for you. Now, I want to be really clear about something. I'm not saying that God can't call you somewhere else. Because I understand that this emphasis on where life exists can, can, can sometimes put kind of blinders up and make our focus a little bit more myopic. I'm not saying that God can't call you across the world. I'm not saying that God can't call you to do some ministry somewhere else in this country. I'm just saying it never, it never starts there. It always starts where life exists. Because I'll tell you this, I'll never commission a pastor who isn't discipling where he is right now, thinking he'll go over there and disciple somebody. I'll never send a missionary who's not ministering to their neighbor across the street because changing your location doesn't make you better at the mission. It begins for each and every one of us where life exists. We have to know what God has called us to do and think through how we can walk it out in every moment of every day. Because what I want you to see is that God can work wherever life exists for you. I think this last point, this last thing we see with Paul will help with this idea. Paul had the right motivation, the right mentality, and the right mission, but finally, and this crushes me, church, I'm going to have to break from my M alliterations. You might not have realized that everyone started with an M, but I got to break it. Paul had the right expectation. Paul had the right expectation. Look with me at verse 14 through the end. It says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. But I love this part. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul wrote Ephesians to encourage the church to continue to maintain their faith and to continue to pursue the mission that God had called them to. But the reason Paul even bothers writing at all is because of what he believes and declares in verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond 
all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. So if you think your ministry is insignificant because of where your life exists, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Within that last verse, Paul is anticipating you in this place reading this scripture saying, I too have a mission because Jesus' name will be great in every generation forever and ever. Amen. Paul has an expectation that the grace of God and that the gospel of God will not lose its power as time passes. And I want you to understand what Paul is saying. He's saying God is able to do more than we could ever think or ask of him. But notice how Paul understands God to work according to the power that works in us. So Paul is acknowledging the power through which God works is a power that is ultimately working within us, which stands to reason that Paul is anticipating that power at work in us also working through us as we seek to make much of Jesus. What Paul is expecting is that the power of God is still able to work and to draw people to himself, that the power of God working in you and through you is still able to make more disciples who then go show off Christ where life exists. And a hindrance to making disciples where life exists is believing that God is unable to do anything where our lives exist. But I want to make it as plain as I can for you, and I'm almost done. A hindrance to you making disciples at your job is believing that God is unable to work at your job. A hindrance to you making disciples in your home is believing that God is unable to work in your home. A hindrance to you making disciples among your friends is believing that God is unable to work in your group of friends. But we don't see that hindrance with Paul. He is expecting God to work, not just in the ways he acts, asks, but in a exceedingly and abundantly greater ways. This belief is what pushes Paul to continue on in his mission, right? So we do not say that we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel with a secret belief that that mission is impossible. We declare that believing that God is able to do above and beyond what we ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. And we believe that he will receive glory in the church. He will receive glory in this church, in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We believe that God can save the boss that you can't stand. We believe that God can save your child who is in the midst of rebellion. We believe that God can save the cashier at the grocery store. We believe that God can save your barber, unless it's Pastor Mike because he's already saved. We believe that God can save your school's chi your, your child's school teacher. We believe that the next pastor of Newbury Church could be slinging dope on your corner right now. We believe that God has called us to make disciples wherever life exists and even more. We believe that wherever our life exists is significant to the kingdom of God and his great glory. Yes. And the question is not whether God's power is at work. The question is if God's power is at work in and through you. Church, let me, let me end by just saying this. We are who we are because of the grace of God. And the very same grace that saved us is the same grace that we proclaim to make disciples who will then show off Christ where life exists. And so the question we ultimately have to answer is this. Will we be faithful 
where life exists, believing that where our life exists is not an accident, but is ordained by God himself to make much of his great name and Christ Jesus in the church for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that indeed we would be a people who show off Christ wherever life exists for us, believing that there is no insignificant aspect of our lives when it comes to the glory of God. And Lord, we praise you for 10 years and what you have done at Newbury, but Lord, we are anticipating you doing above and beyond exceedingly more than we could think or ask in these next 10 years. But we know that you have called us to be faithful because we will be the ones through whom you work. And so give us grace to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.